John chapter 4 holds this story in it, and I, I'd like to, to take a few moments uh, for us to look at how it is that when Jesus encountered this anonymous woman at a well, that one of these days that we will get to know her name, but for now she remains nameless to us but certainly remains with us as somebody that we feel like we've got a little bit in common with. A, a, a woman who, uh, at, the, at the opportunity to seek life and truth, uh, had to almost be convinced to stare directly into the face of the Savior. I think within this passage, it is one of those beautiful stories from the life of Jesus that, that could hold many, many Bible studies and sermons. But for our purposes, I wanted you to hear the whole story all packaged together. I wanted you to be able to experience this whole story arc of a woman who is, uh, it has this encounter with the Savior of the world and is completely unaware of what is about to happen in her life, uh, to see that there is a, a significant transformation that happens in her. And, and I uh, would derive this morning, uh, for our purposes, six key ideas uh, that I think might be helpful for us as we consider the idea of how Jesus goes on His search for people. In this beginning station of the Gospel of John, there is a lot of healing that happens. And as I have said earlier, we often only attribute the idea of healing when it comes to our physical being. But there is this spiritual healing that we watch happened a couple of messages ago when Jesus encounters Nicodemus, who is the teacher of all the teachers. He is the Pharisee of all the Pharisees. He is the Jewish leader of all the Jewish leaders. He is the guy who uh, he is relying on his ethnic heritage and his family reputation and his religious activities in order to gain favor with God. And Jesus has to intersect with a really, really religious person to convince him that he actually needs spiritual healing, that he needs life. And now we see Jesus intersect with somebody who is completely different from Nicodemus. She's not Jewish. She's not a religious leader. She is not going to be held up as a, a paradigm and a paragon of virtue. Instead, to set the stage here, Jesus, as He is traveling, He, he travels northward uh, into Samaria. And the, and the passage even tells us that uh, you know, Jews and Samaritans didn't associate with one another, which culturally was very true. They avoided one another. There are some, uh, some stories in history that, that especially Jewish men, when they would have to travel northward, that they would actually travel uh, further into uh, what is the country of Israel and then travel north so that they could go around Samaria, that they would walk miles out of their way at times to avoid Samaria because they wanted to avoid Samaritans. And it tells us that this woman comes out uh, and, and Jesus stops at the well about noon and that the woman comes out to draw well uh, water at that time. Well, nobody in the ancient world drew water out of wells in the middle of the day. 
They did it uh, right as the sun was beginning to rise, or they would do it right as the sun was beginning to set when there's still a little bit of light because they didn't have buckets and, and jars like we do. They had big clay pots that on their own were heavy, and then when you would put five or six gallons of water into them, they became increasingly heavy and difficult to carry around, and so you didn't want to do that in the middle of the day when the sun was beating down on you. The only reason that you would do that in the middle of the day is because you wanted to avoid everybody else. And so here's a woman who is trying to avoid everybody else, and we find out maybe a little bit why it is that she wants to avoid everybody else because of how Jesus re reminds her the frame of her life. So what can we learn from a passage like this where Jesus comes into this woman's purview? Well, the first thing that I want you to see is something about Jesus, and that is the design of Jesus' life was to find lost people. This is the whole design of why Jesus even shows up. Jesus does not come to the earth to just be a moral example to us. If Jesus wanted us to have a moral example, the Son of God doesn't have to show up for that. He could just pick out the best among us and, and have a book written, have a biography written about that person. He could just pick out your very godly grandmother, you know, that seemed to never have, a, you know, a harsh word or a critique of anybody else. You know, he could pick out that one friend of yours that is always filled with grace and wonderful, and he could hold them up. But instead, Jesus is actually here searching, and he's searching for lost people. It is the intentional decision that Jesus makes to stop at this well in order to meet this woman. I mean, let's keep in mind, this is the Son of God. Uh, this is the one who is present at the creation of all things. He is the eternal one. He holds all power and all knowledge. Jesus could have stopped anywhere to meet anybody. He could have stopped anywhere to avoid everybody. It says that he was, he was tired. He was physically exhausted from his earlier ministry. And so he could have avoided everybody that he wanted to, but Jesus with intentionality stops at this place in order to meet this person. He has a purposeful engagement with her. The Son of God has a plan, and the Bible reveals to us this plan that, that Jesus has come to seek and to save those who are lost, and he has given that same mission to us the church, that we are to go forth and make disciples. Just as this is the intentional design of the life of Jesus, that he would go out and find people that are lost, he then, before he leaves the earth after his resurrection, he hands this same mission to us. He says, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything that I have commanded you. And remember, I'm going to be with you to the very end of the age. And so the design of Jesus' life to find lost people is something that we now have inherited. A second principle that I see from this uh, story is that Jesus engages with people that we often avoid. This, when the disciples get back to where Jesus is with this woman, 
They've got questions running around in their minds, but they don't verbalize them. They want to know, why are you talking to this woman? You know, what, what's going on here? I mean, they know the customs. They know what is expected and not expected of Jewish men and Jewish rabbis and people of good standing in the community. She is completely different in ethnicity and culture from Jesus. A Samaritan was ethnically a person who basically could not trace their ethnicity. They were a hodgepodge of a lot of different ethnicities. Uh, Samaritans were me. I mean, I, I can't trace my ethnic heritage in any one direction. I got one, like, great uncle third ways removed who has done the family tree of the nation clan. Uh, I always ask my dad, because we do have kind of an unusual last name, nation. I said, Dad, I remember asking him as a teenager, Dad, where did we get the last name nation? And my father, who uh, likes to joke around sarcastically, so in case you ever wonder where that happened, uh, when he visits again, you can thank him or blame him. And he looked at me, and he got really serious, and, and if you've met my dad, he's big. He's six foot two, you know, 200 pounds, kind of a big-chested guy, voice deeper than mine. I know, it's impressive. <laughs> and he said, well, he said, son, you see, there was a member of our family that was a horse thief. <laughs> and, and he said he had to change his name while he was on the run. Well, the real story, if you trace the nations back, we are just a hodgepodge of people that are scattered throughout Western and Eastern Europe. There's like no one kind of person that we are. And, and, and this is what a Samaritan was in, in these ancient days, whereas a Jewish person, the, the Jews prided themselves. They, they kept all of their marriages within their own ethnicities, uh, most of them did, and, and so that they could trace their lineage. It was a very high priority for them. This is like how Nicodemus was in John chapter 3. He would have been able to trace his lineage way, 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 way back to the original 12 you know, fathers of the tribes of Israel. And, and, and culturally, Samaritans and Jews were very different. They had different practices. They had different rituals. They had different foods. They had different languages. And Jesus doesn't even bat an eye. He doesn't stutter step. He doesn't hesitate. And the people that we try to avoid because of superficial differences like ethnicity and cultural practices are the very people that we see Jesus seeking out. In fact, in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 11, verse 19, Jesus is accused by the people who don't like him as being a friend of tax collectors and sinners. And so if, if you know, the, the whole WWJD bracelet, what would Jesus do? Jesus would be friends with bad people. That's what Jesus would do. If you ever wonder, well, what would Jesus do here? Jesus would befriend that person. Jesus would invest in that person whose life is broken and that needs grace. Because for us to avoid a person that we deem to be difficult is to decide that they are unworthy of the gospel's attention from me to them. 
When we look at that neighbor, that member of the community, that immigrant, that person from another country, that person from another ethnicity or tribe or cultural setting, and we say, you know, that person's just too hard or that person's too different or that person's just not like me, then we are suddenly making the decision that as a Christian, I have no responsibility to actually deliver the gospel to that person because they're not like me. I can avoid that person. And that's the exact opposite of what Jesus does. Jesus intentionally engages the most religiously active person of the country, and he intentionally engages the woman who had the worst reputation in town. And he engages and he befriends people to the point that he has dinner in the homes of people that everybody else says, you shouldn't be around those people, you should avoid those people. And so we need to never allow temporary differences to create eternal ripples. The world says, be prideful. The kingdom of God says, be engaged. So Jesus, he engages people that are often very different from us. The third principle that I'd ask you to grab a hold of is that it is our work to direct conversations toward eternal issues, issues that that are really going to matter. When Jesus uh, asks for this woman to give him something to drink, then that kicks off this conversation. She doesn't know why this Jewish man would Uh, asked something from her because it would have been deemed unclean by his ethnic tribe for her to draw water out of a well and give it to him. He would have had contact with somebody that was religiously unclean, which would have made him, disqualified him from being able to go to the temple until he had gone through a ritualistic cleansing and bathing procedure. And, And so this kicks off this conversation where he wants to talk with her about some eternal ideas, but she wants to deal with some impersonal philosophy. You see, people want to talk. People want to interact, but what people don't want is for you to pry too deeply. People like for things to be kept right out here where it's very manageable and where it's really easy for me to be able to kind of shove you off if the conversation gets a little too prickly. And we need to help people, our neighbors, that don't know Christ yet, to move from the impersonal philosophical ideas about what is good and what is right and how the world works and those people are nice and those people are not nice, to their personal spiritual needs. This is what Jesus does. He moves her from talking about, well, you, you Jewish people that are super religious, you worship over there in Jerusalem, and we Samaritan people that are kind of religious, we've got our kind of spirits over here in the mountains where we worship. And one of these days, there's going to be somebody who's going to show up who's going to straighten it all out. And Jesus goes to the heart of the matter. Instead of her allowing her to continue to talk about big philosophical framework ideas, he gets to the heart of the matter of saying, well, listen, why don't we sit down and have this talk? In fact, why don't you go call your husband and come back so that we can have this conversation? Because Jesus wants to get to the heart of the matter with her, which is her heart. And, and that's where she has to begin dealing with, well, you know, my life is maybe a bigger mess than I'm willing to let on. She was willing to kind of go the philosophical route and, okay, this Jewish guy is going to talk to me and he's going to talk about living water and he's going to talk about water that's drawn up and springs of living water that are come out of my life. 
And, and Jesus is like, no, 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 we're not just going to talk about this in a theoretical kind of sense. We've got to get down to the nitty gritty of it all. Jesus has a desire to move us, not just to be religiously smart, not just to be philosophically astute. Jesus wants to move us toward life, and and life is found in him. And so those that are outside of the faith who are agnostic will be happy to talk about spiritual and religious and philosophical concepts of God and meaning, But what they actually need is to come face to face with their soul that is soaked with sin and Jesus's willingness to save them. That's what they actually need. And sometimes that journey will be very lengthy. Now, with the woman at the well, it's one conversation. Bam, we're there. But with some of your friends, it may take multiple conversations. It may take weeks. It may take months. It may take years of praying for this person and engaging this person and walking humbly and kindly with this person, but we need to be the friends that are not going to let a neighbor, we're not going to just let a a co-worker, we're not going to let a family member just sit and stew in their philosophical juices thinking that that's going to be enough. Well, they, you know, they're trying hard and they're trying to be moral and they're trying to be religious in some way, and and one of these days, somebody's going to tell them. We need to be the ones who say, no, I want to help press this person toward life that can be found in Christ. And and that, as um, people much wiser than I have ever said, oftentimes means that you got to help somebody get lost before they can get saved. You have to help somebody understand the dastardly effects of sin in their lives before they can understand their need of a Savior, because a lot of people are walking around thinking that everything's just fine. Like me and, you've heard it, the big guy upstairs, you know, we're cool. You know, God knows my heart that I'm good to my spouse and I'm kind to my kids, and God knows my heart. And and you can say, right, God does know your heart, just like He knows mine, and He understands that we are exceedingly wicked and that our hearts are far from him and are rebellious, and and that the sin is not something that we face after this life, but that we all are, we're all abiding and residing under the wrath of God against sin right now, but that there is an escape through Jesus who is this well of living water. A fourth concept that I'd ask you to think about is to prioritize God's will in your life. Jesus has this encounter with the woman. He confronts her. He tells her that he's the Messiah who has come to explain everything, and then she runs off. And we'll talk about her running off in just a second. And the disciples, they've shown up, these 12 guys that are watching Jesus do ministry and they say, and they try to cajole him into eating some food. You've got to be hungry. You've got to be tired. And Jesus takes this as one more opportunity to lay before them a, an important spiritual lesson. He says there in verse 32, I have food to eat that you don't know about. And, and they're like, well, wait, did somebody show up with like a sack lunch that we're unaware of? Is there a picnic basket sitting somewhere around? And Jesus says there in verse 34, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. I mean, what an astounding statement. We cannot lose track 
that Jesus is fully man. He is 100% a human being who needs to eat, he needs to drink, he needs to rest. Uh, This is Jesus. And it tells us earlier in the chapter he's tired from his journeys. So Jesus is in a place where, yeah, he he would like a sandwich at this point. He would like, you know, some sustenance. But he wants to make sure that, that the guys know that the will of God ranks over everything else, that, that his need to get lunch it is subservient to, his, to the will of God to interact with this woman and to be prepared for what's going to happen next. It shows a commitment and a prioritization. As I have said before, this is one of those places where it's an antidote. It is an antidote to a selfish life and sin. That antidote is joy in God's work. Jesus, in order to drive this point home, begins to describe harvest. In a society that was built around agriculture, this was an easy image for them to get their minds around. Because he says, open your eyes there in verse 35 and look at the fields because they are ready for harvest. Now, maybe you've heard this verse before. Maybe you've heard a lot of sermons or Bible studies on this verse before, but let me do remind you of the context of it. Jesus tells the disciples that the evangelistic harvest field to get people into the kingdom of God is ready and ripe in the midst of them being an oppressed people in the Roman Empire. They are a minority of a minority. They are an offshoot of a religion that the Romans hate. They are seen as weirdos and wackos and outcasts and people not to be listened to. And yet Jesus says to his disciples, guys, you can't even imagine how ready for harvest this field is in front of us, how many people there are that are waiting for you to swing the sickle in order to bring them in. Because people are already working in this harvest field, and you're going to harvest where you've not even planted. You're going to harvest where you've not even worked. You're going to see people coming into the kingdom of God. And and oftentimes we wonder, is that really true? (laughs) Is that something that's actually happening in our day, and I want to assure you that it is. I mean, the fact that we see baptisms on a Sunday morning reminds us that there are people that are ready to come into the kingdom of God. Just this past week, I spent most of the week in Washington, D.C. with a coalition of ministries that minister to suffering and persecuted Christians around the world, and we heard reports from Sudan and from Pakistan. We heard reports from Romania and from Cuba. We heard reports even from China, where there is extreme persecution. Right now in China, there are an estimated 100 to 115 million Christians that are in China. And the oppression has never been greater than it is right now. That The government is actively going into churches and tearing down their crosses, and where they tear down a cross, they put up a poster of the emperor of China. They have public Bible burnings in the streets, and you can even find this on YouTube where they are actively demolishing church buildings. Uh, Right now, there's a a very uh, well-watched video where uh, all of the people will run out of this one particular very large church building. They're all herded into the street, 
The government workers went into the basement of the building, put the dynamite charges around all the pillars, and while somebody stood out on the street with their phone videoing, you can watch this church building implode. And it's horrible. So these are our brothers and sisters in China, 105, let's say, million of them. And yet, sociologists and Christian uh, studies are showing that by the year 2025, that there will be twice as many Christians in China as there are now, even in the midst of the persecution, because it is, it is driving them to be faithful. Thank you, my dear. And so, we have to decide that we're going to prioritize the will of God in our lives regardless, whether it is meeting the person who is completely unlike you, or whether it is traveling to a place that you've never been before, or whether it is engaging a neighbor that you've just never had a conversation before, that the will of God is worth the effort. Number five and six, let me push through here pretty quickly. The, number five, <clears throat> the greatest witnesses are living in their first love. You remember this verse? There's a place in the very end of the Bible, the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 2 is in a series of, of smaller letters within the larger book of Revelation that Jesus himself is writing letters to certain churches in that first century. And there's a, a letter that he writes to the church that's in the city of Ephesus, and he says, you've got so much going for you. But here in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 and 5, he says, but I have this against you. You have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember then how far you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. Otherwise, I'll come to you and I'll remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. What I have found is that the greatest witnesses for the faith are often the ones that are closest to their own salvation, not just chronologically, but experientially. It's not just the people that are the greatest witnesses are the ones that just got saved like yesterday, and so they're the best among us, but it's the ones among us that, that we say, I want to stay so close to Jesus. I want to mature in my faith. I want to experientially, constantly recapture the passion. I want to stay with my first love, that I have nothing more and I have nothing better than Jesus. And, and one of the beautiful things about this that I want you to see, and maybe this is, maybe needs to be part of your story, is that in this passage, that the woman who is the greatest outcast in the city becomes the greatest evangelist for the city. I mean, it is most likely, and it is reasonable for us to assume that the reason she comes to the well at noon is because she is known as uh, the loose woman in town, shall we say. She is known that she's had multiple marriages that have failed, she is had, and now she is living with a man who she is not married to. This is, even among Samaritan culture, would have been very frowned upon. And, and so, this is a woman who doesn't want to be around everybody else. She doesn't want to hear the gossip. She doesn't want to, the barbs thrown at her. And so, this is a woman who is an outcast to her own city. It's the only reason that we can figure out why she would come and get water at noon when nobody went to go get water. And yet, when she figures out who Jesus is, she doesn't even take her pot of water with her. 
She just rushes back to the town to tell everybody, I have met the man who knows everything about me. And, and the needy, and if you find yourself to be the one who is needy, you become the one who is the provider of grace for everybody else. If you feel like I'm the one who is the outcast and I don't fit in and, and my life has been broken and busted and I have trusted in my riches or I have trusted in uh, drug addictions or I have trusted in a series of, of blown-up relationships or I have trusted in building my own reputation so that people will be impressed by me or I have trusted in whatever other pursuit of pleasure in order to find some happiness in this world, however broken you have been and you have been an outcast from the kingdom of heaven and maybe you have felt like an outcast from the community, you can have your life completely changed by Christ so that you become the greatest messenger of grace. Which leads me to my final point, and that is the only thing that we have to offer is Jesus. That's all we've got. Uh, she tries to talk about the well. She tries to talk about comparative religions. She has a conversation about philosophical ideas and where do you worship. But what she needed and what our neighbors need is more of Jesus. They don't need more of our meandering philosophies of life. They don't need us to moralize them. They need to become saved. They need to follow Jesus because the gospel is always enough. And you and I have got to dig into that idea and believe it wholeheartedly that the gospel is always enough. And so she doesn't go just back to the city to say, hey, I have finally figured out the religion we need. She goes back to the city and she says, come and meet the man. Come and see the guy. Come and be in the presence of Jesus who told me everything about, himself, about me. She didn't need for them just to hear her story. She needed them to meet the one who changed her story. And so that is our work. That is our priority because we believe that the gospel is enough. And so if you are the one who feels like the outcast, the broken, the one who has always sought for the answer, the one who wants the living water springing up from you like a great fountain, I can tell you, because it's in the Scripture and I believe it, and it has taken root in my own life, that the gospel the good news of Jesus Christ is enough. Let's pray together. Father, I would just ask that those who need…